When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Gastor Almonte. He looks at me, he's like, yo, man, you look good. And I'm like, I know, I got pants on. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just wanted to say, hey, if you like Risk, you should also definitely check out the Radio Diaries podcast. From the audio diary of a Saudi American girl to the story of a dropped wrench that almost destroyed the state of Arkansas, Radio Diaries tells the extraordinary stories of ordinary life. For Valentine's Day, Radio Diaries has a special episode about audio love letters sent through the mail in the 1940s. These voiceographs were recorded in little booths all around the world from Coney Island to U.S. U.S. Army bases, and listening to them is like time travel. Check out the story at radiodiaries.org and subscribe to the Radio Diaries podcast today. Also, the U.S. Postal Service is an important tool for any business, reaching every household every day. And Stamps.com is the easiest way to access all the amazing services of the post office. Stamps.com never closes. You can print postage for letters and packages at your convenience 24-7. You can print postage for any mail class right from your own computer. The exact amount of postage every time. Never underpay or overpay. It's convenient and efficient. They bring all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail from your computer and printer, and they'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs, so there's no need to lease an expensive postage meter and no long-term commitments. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage and a digital scale. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is the whitefield brothers behind me now we're calling this week's episode off balance the way that i feel all of the time (laughs) although 
I do feel a little bit more on balance these days now that we have finished the first draft of the Risk book. It's truly something to read. It's filled with laughs and tears and oh my God. I mean those oh my God moments that are so typical of Risk stories. Anyway, you should pre-order it. Pre-order it and get all your friends to do the same at theriskbook.com. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful stand-up comedian Liz Mealy. This is a story that she told at the Risk Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn a ways back. But before that, we're going to hear from Gastor Almonte. This was from the very first Risk show at Caveat on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. We've moved. We've found a new home. We are next there on February 24th. I think you'll be able to hear in this recording what a wonderful time we had at our first night there. This is Gastor Almonte. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Gastor Almonte. And here he is now with a story we call Knickerbocker Love Story. Uh, before I begin, let me apologize in advance. Um, I got a seven and an eight year old at home. Normally when I prep stories, my wife takes them out the house. Uh, the story involves sex. They were in the way, so I had to use a code word for sex the whole time. So bear with me. So me and Claudia were in her dad's room and we about to play checkers. <laughs> Good to see y'all on board, you know? <laughs> you know, you gotta understand, I fell in love with Claudia cause she was the cashier at the local VIM. You know, All right, so not enough people know what that is. So VIM is the best jeans and sneaker store in America. They sell incredible Tims, Jordans, and knockoff jeans. It's like a Foot Locker without hope. Claudia was the cashier, you know, and I get up to the cash register and she waves me in. She's like, hey, yo, don't buy these. When it rains, the jeans are gonna bleed and mess up your Tims. And I'm like, yo, you just saved me $120. $100 on these boots and $20 on these three pair of jeans. <laughs> I need you in my life. So I pursued her, several dates to crown fried chicken later. Here we are, Claudia's dad's room. We about to play checkers. Now, I pride myself on being a suave chubby dude, but earlier that summer, I'd broken my arm, so I was in the cast. I didn't realize how often you use your arms when you play checkers. You know? Like, even when you play checkers by yourself, you want the options, you know? Keep it fresh, versatility. Took me 15 minutes to take off my shirt. 
cut the lights off, get in the bed, which I realize now is a taboo, it's a dad's bed. So no, no. But the checkers game's about to go down. <laughs> Mood is set, and right when we about to get the business, Claudia's sister starts banging on the door. She's like, Claudia, Claudia, you gotta get him out of here. Dad's home, dad's home. And we in a panic. You gotta understand, this is a railroad apartment in East New York, Brooklyn. You know? I don't know if y'all been there before. If you haven't, keep it that way. It's for your own good. So there's one exit, there's one door. You know, there's no way out. You know, now it's the first floor. So she looks at me, she's like, Gaston, you gotta hop out the window. And I don't know if y'all see me, there's been a lot of milkshakes in my life. I'm not making that jump. And she's like, it's only 15 feet. I'm like, you can't say 15 feet and only. When we talking about jumping, 15 foot drive, I'm with you only. That's the only scenario. We panicked. Thankfully, all the buildings in East New York have metal bars, because nobody would want to leave East New York and get into an apartment in East New York. <laughs> There's nothing to take. But the adjacent window, it has the air conditioner, and the bars go around the AC too, so I decided to climb on top of that. You know, so I'm getting out the window, I climb on top of the bars over the AC unit, right as her dad walks in the room. I made it. But he's trying to piece it together. He's like, yo, why are the lights off? Why were you getting dressed in the dark? Why is the window open? Why is everything a mess? And Claudia's like, oh, uh, I was going to do the laundry. Machine got a little hot, so I opened up the window. That's why the clothes is everywhere. Clever girl. And she says that right as he's at the window pulling the gate closed, but he doesn't see me because he's looking at her. Now I'm feeling confident, you know. I got away with this. Start to relax. And then two cops walk by the side of the building. Now, I don't know if you guys heard there's problems with cops in neighborhoods like mine. We could talk after the show. But I figured it out. See, because cops, they give great advice. I listen to them all the time. Slow down, freeze, put your hands up. Great suggestions. And I always listen, you know why? Because in general, when the cop is telling you something, they know more about the situation than you do. The problem with cops in my neighborhood is that they don't want to accept that on occasion, I might know more about the situation than they do. So for example, when I'm standing on this air conditioning unit, <laughs> and you walk by the house, and you yell out to me, excuse me, sir. I'm trying to calculate in my head, how do I explain to this guy as quickly and as efficiently as possible, yo, my man, I'm trying to play checkers with this girl. <laughs> I'm 18, she's 18, completely legal. Her dad just got home, he's not gonna care. He's gonna try to kill me, then I'ma actually need you. <laughs> How can we avoid all this? <laughs> so I came up with this. This was my solution. Yo, jail. 
never good when you have to whisper and scream at the same time. But cops only got one direction with their volume. He gets more assertive, you know? He's like, what was that, sir? I said, yo, chill. <laughs> Thankfully, he had a partner, he's a younger dude. I knew him from around the way we ordered chopped cheeses together at three in the morning. He says, I got this. Goes around the front yard, comes to the backyard, and he comes up to the window. He's like, what's going on, man? I'm like, yo, I'm trying to play checkers with this girl. Her dad just got home. Once he leaves, everything's cool. He nods, goes around, talks to his partner. They laugh and leave. I'm two for two. <laughs> Stuff of legends here, you know. <laughs> now I'm really getting cocky, you know. Start to relax again. And Claudia runs up to the window. She said, Gaston, give me your pants. I'm like, what? She's like, you put on my dad's work pants. I need those. <laughs> Dickies was in style back then. <laughs> now, I don't know if you've ever tried taking off your pants <laughs> while standing on the air conditioning unit. 15 feet into the air with your arm in a cast. It's a bit of a challenge. You know, I kicked off my Tims to the yard, unbuckled the pants, he slid down to the AC unit. I grab him with my left arm, throw him to the window, completely miss. They fall down to the yard. Claudia shakes her head in panic, tries to buy me time and goes inside. So now I climb down, I gotta make this drop. Hurt my ankle on the landing. Ball up the pants and I'm looking up at the window trying to figure out how I'm gonna get these back up to Claudia. Two cops come back again. Now, the young partner, he has his arms out and he's looking at me like, yo, what the fuck? Cause he vouched for me, like he co-signed me, you know? He told his mans I was cool. So I just started running over before they could start. And I'm like, yo, listen, man, nothing's changed. Oh, the cop is like, you had pants on before, sir. <laughs> Everything's changed. But I explain again, listen, trying to play checkers with this girl. Her dad just got home, accidentally put on dad's pants. That's on me. I'ma own that. But once he gets his pants, everything's cool. You tend to lose credibility when you try to make statements in your boxes. That's advice for y'all, take that home today. So the cop is like, I'm sorry, man. I, I got to go to the front of the building. I got to see what, what's going on here. So they, we start walking, and I'm pleading my case. Finally, Claudia runs back to the window. She's like, Gaston, quick, throw up the pants. He's in the bathroom. I look at the older cop, and he's like, I got to see this. <laughs> Waves me in. Now, I'm Dominican. 
I could throw all day, hire me for your softball teams, I got you. But that's on my right arm. <laughs> Left-handed, throwing up pants 15 feet into the air, there's wind factor involved, I don't know all the math. I just know it's hard to do. Six throws in, my arm is sore as shit. Now the cops are talking shit, taking bets on the side. Young cop bet lunch money that I wouldn't make it in under 10 throws. I made it in nine. Claudia made a great catch, pulls the pants in. I turn around, I look at the cops, and they wave me over. I grab my Tims and I get over there, and all the cop is like, yo, we gonna wait this one out. That okay with you? I'm like, yeah, I'm kinda vested in this game of checkers, sir. And we wait, 10 minutes go by. Claudia's dad walks out the front of the building, gets in his car and drives off to work. And they escort me to the front of the house. Ring the bell, Claudia opens. And they're like, do you know this man? And Claudia is like, do you think I catch everybody's pants out the window, sir? <laughs> Oh, the cop tried to be slick. You know, he was like, you know, uh, I don't care that your kids wanted to play checkers, but in general, it's a good idea for you guys to be in the same room when you do so. <laughs> Admittedly solid advice. The younger cop tried to console me. He was like, don't worry about it, man. I've been there before. You've been here before. Really? What is his life like? They leave us to it. I go inside, and Claudia and I play a legendary game of checkers. That's not the ending, but I do deserve a clap for that. You know, a few years later, you know, me and my dad uh, own a lot of property in uh, East New York, but uh, one of the buildings had a break-in. My dad uh, gets there first, so I come in after work, and he's already talking with the cops about the break-in, and I see him talking with the captain in the background, and I get up the stairs, and who do I see but my chopped cheese partner, a much older, younger cop. And he looks at me, he's like, yo, man, you look good. And I'm like, I know, I got pants on. Oh, and I hear my dad complaining in the background. They start making their way over to us. My dad's, you know, spazzing. He's like, man, I can't believe we're still getting break-ins. I thought the neighborhood was getting better. You know, are we over these type of things over here? The younger cop winks at me and then looks at my dad. He's like, man, you wouldn't believe the things I seen. <laughs> Thank you. I can't now, I gotta finish my pants. Pants! Pull my pants! Pants! Nice pants! Pants! Take your fucking pants I off! Pants! I'd like to know what you're doing with all that chicken in your pants. Why do you ask? Pants! 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 
watch that stupid Damn. shit? Turn it off. Ah, oh, now that's much better. Why don't we play a little game of checkers just to unwind? I come from a family of doers and fixers, a family of be better and don't take knowers. Uh, much of this comes from my father. He loves his self-help books. He's read them all. How to Win Friends and Influence People, Awaken the Giant Within, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If you have ever been in Barnes and Nobles, it's always the aisle with the guy that's white and looks really lost that hasn't been fucked in a while. <laughs> my dad's read those books and he made us read those books as children, not young adults. 12-year-old kids. I didn't make a friend until college. So my little brother, uh, Sam, he has bipolar one. If you don't know anything about mental illness, there's bipolar two, which is depression, then mania, and then there's bipolar one, which is depression, mania, then psychotic break. He's been a lot of people. My brother's been Buddha. Uh, he's been Jesus. He made a great Jesus. I actually would have followed him anywhere. <laughs> Uh, about eight months ago, my brother had a psychotic break and he set all my father's books on fire in the living room. And these episodes have happened a lot. It actually didn't even phase my mom. She was actually pretty calm about it. She came downstairs at 3 a.m. and she's like, hey, what you doing, buddy? He's like making a fire. She's like, why aren't you using wood? He's like, we ran out. And there's just like a huge pile of wood next to the fireplace. So the next day, my mom called me up, and she was like, hey, I just want to let you know your brother set fire to all your father's self-help books, and you know what? Sanest thing anyone in this family's ever done. <laughs> I didn't even stop him. I encouraged him. I was like, did you get the Tony Robbins cassettes in his car? <laughs> you know, the ones that ruined every family vacation. <laughs> my dad actually wasn't even that upset. He's like, I have extra copies in my room. I give them as Christmas gifts. People love them. I change lives. And we laughed about it, because that's all we could do. This was actually Sammy's uh, most recent, longest, and scariest psychotic break. It started in April 2015 and lasted until February 2016. And we actually weren't sure it was ever going to stop. My brother's always been a really easygoing guy. The legend of Sam is he was the best baby. The best baby. He never cried. Uh, he was just this pudgy little kid that you could just sit with and never did anything or moved. Um, whenever we had the choice as kids to either fold clothes or watch Sam, always watch Sam. It was the best. Now that he's older, he kind of is turned into this like gentle giant-like character. Uh, my brother's incredibly smart. He has a high IQ. Um, he just absorbs information. He's always spewing out facts he learned from a documentary or like a science show that he just watched. Um, he's very kind. He's thoughtful. He's silly. He's weird. He's creative. I mean, almost all the art in my room my brother has made for me over the years. And he's funny. I mean, nobody makes me gut laugh like my little brother. It's strange to me, as he's kind of transformed and become this different person, I've kind of seen my brother really be a person that I want to be too. He's just a kind person, and we became really close over the years. So uh, I do stand-up comedy, and he'd come on the road with me. So we would go to these gigs, we'd watch movies and cartoons in the hotel room, he'd help me sell CDs after the show, and then we would drive home, and these road gigs are actually some of my favorite memories. If I'm really honest, I always thought it was going to be me. I had acute awareness of my family's dark history with mental illness, and I, um, 
I kind of prepared for it. I, I read a lot of books about it. I, I read psychology books. I read books about mental illness. I read suicide books, uh, not only to like learn about my family, but really to prepare myself. And the few friends I let in over the years always thought I was irrational, but I never thought I was. It was going to happen. It was just a matter of when. My brother's been picked up by the cops several times for trespassing and uh, for going missing. He's actually been escorted from our home to the hospital from the police every time his symptoms and behavior have become unmanageable. It's, uh, it's kind of sad. He always goes willingly. Always. Almost like a, like a bear that's been shot by a tranquilizer dart that kind of starts to realize that it doesn't have control. My brother would first get angry, then quickly submit. Shoulders slumped, head down, he willingly and defeatedly would walk to the cop car and be taken to the hospital. My mom actually sat my brother down a couple of months ago and told him, my only goal for this year is for you not to be hospitalized. And my brother responded with, then stop calling the cops on me, mom. <laughs> Solid answer. I remember the first time I realized there was something wrong with Sam. Uh, he was 19, and he was in college, and we were video chatting, and he was kind of aggressive and determined in a way that didn't feel very him. Uh, he's always been stubborn. We all are. But he kept talking about, like, quitting school and living off the land in Savannah. He kept saying he was going to buy a van and live by the river, but with no irony. I actually think he might be too young to know the Chris Farley sketch that he was slowly becoming. <laughs> I didn't tell anyone. I knew that something was wrong, but I don't think I realized how wrong things were. So a couple of weeks later, my parents went down for parent-teacher weekend and discovered what I had already known. Sammy wasn't okay. He stopped showering and brushing his teeth. He um, was talking to himself. He had these grandiose ideas about life. He was paranoid, and he wasn't making much sense. I actually don't know how many parents would have quickly diagnosed their son with mental illness as quickly as my family could. Both my grandmothers were mentally ill. They were in and out of mental institutions, and they both killed themselves when my parents were in college. My mother has struggled with her own issues that have probably, you know, mostly gone undiagnosed and mildly treated. And my father has self-medicated with work, self-help books, and ice cream. <laughs> and that's my family. And I, I knew by every definition of the word that my family was crazy, that our history, upbringing, and behavior wasn't normal. But it wasn't until Sam got sick that I truly understood that it couldn't be hidden anymore, that there were secrets that couldn't be covered up. This wasn't a wound that we could keep putting Band-Aids over. This wasn't a book that could be burned. I, uh, I do read a lot of these books, and one of the books I read about abuse and PTSD, they talk about how often witnessing distress in others causes more damage to the person watching it than the person that has been doing it themselves. So uh, an example is like a father that beats his wife. The son usually has more psychological damage than if he would only beat the son. There's something about the level of helplessness in watching someone you care about get hurt that causes more damage and makes you sadder. And I don't think I really understood this until I was 28 and slowly watched my brother lose his mind. Sammy ended up uh, moving in with me, so the only way that we could get him to leave college was to tell him that he could come stay with me. And uh, I think it's no one's goal to ever move back home with their parents, and I don't think you have to be mentally ill to expect that. So my brother came in, and he stayed with me, and I was happy to have him. I just set some ground rules. He had to shower and brush his teeth every day. 
he had to do some form of exercise, go for a walk, bike. He really liked biking at the time. And he had to do something creative. He was actually in college for filmmaking and he liked to draw. So every day uh, we'd go for a bike ride together. He helped me prepare and cook meals. And then we would do arts and crafts every night before we went to bed. He was doing really well. I didn't force him to talk about anything. I didn't force him to see a therapist. He seemed like he was just being healthy and getting better until a couple weeks in, he started to act weird again. I would walk into my room and he would be staring at the wall, eyes bulging out of his head, looking terrified. He started telling me about people he'd met in my building and had been talking to. I lived in my building for four years. I never met or talked to anyone. I was starting to get suspicious that maybe these people weren't real. Finally, after a couple more weeks, he said that he wanted to see a therapist, so I started taking him to weekly appointments. My brother... My brother did end up moving out. Honestly, after a couple of months, he moved in with my sister for a little bit, but then it really did become too much, and he ended up uh, moving back home, and that's when all the kind of um, cop pickups and um, hospitalizations started to happen. The first time Sammy got hospitalized, he wouldn't let anybody talk to the doctors but me, so I ended up becoming my brother's medical liaison. So the doctors would call me up, they would tell me everything that was going on with him, and then tell me what drugs they wanted to put him on, but they told me he wasn't cooperating and they would need my help to convince him to take these drugs. But I didn't really understand what the drugs were. So my older sister is an emergency room nurse. My brother-in-law is an EMT and firefighter. My parents are veterinarians. So I'd call up my family. I would discuss what all these drugs were. And they would tell me. And we would discuss basically what we thought was best for Sam. And then I would call up the doctors, approve the medication. And then I would have to convince my brother to take these drugs. I tell jokes for a living. Nothing has prepared me for this situation in my life. It was confusing and emotionally exhausting, and I started to think that comedy clubs weren't really preparing me for life. (laughs) I'll say this, the hospital visits were no less confusing. Um, My brother was sick, but he was never the sickest one in those hospitals. It was like straight out of a movie. You would go through several locked, heavily secured doors. Then you would go in and you would see these deranged people talking to themselves, shuffling around in PJs and in robes. And the walls and rooms were always bare and had no personality. And it was like a prison. You couldn't bring anything in. So I would try to bring my brother some comic books, but really there was nothing I could do for him. And my brother has always been smart and together enough that he would always try to convince me he didn't belong there. And most visits, I felt like he was right. Usually what happens is they go through a mania process. So my brother would start getting manic, but we never really could catch it because he would just get super motivated, which is kind of how my whole family works. And we're probably all a bit bipolar too, if I'm being honest. So he would get super motivated, but then we would find out it was mania, but it would always be too late because after the mania, it'd become a psychotic break and he would start acting weird and having these weird behaviors. So my brother would put flowers in his ears. He would actually tape any eyes, like any picture that had eyes, he would tape over the eyes. He started to unplug the Wi-Fi because it said it was hurting his brain. One night, he actually kidnapped my mom on the way to Quick Check because he told my mom he was Jesus and Jesus needed to be on the West Coast and they were going to drive there. My mother was somehow able to convince my brother that Jesus needed to eat some sandwiches and maybe rest a little bit before this big drive. (laughs) And then she was able to get home. And then he also stabbed a tree and then later told us it represented my father. Just fun experiences. Um... (laughs) The worst was actually when he stopped coming inside. He would actually circle the backyard for hours, just talking and laughing to himself, only accepting glasses of water. It was that period of time that I nicknamed him Free Range Sam. 
The weirdest part was when he stopped coming inside at all. Uh, at one point, he really just would chain smoke on the couch, and he would only eat sandwiches my mom would drop off, and he would just sleep on the hammock. And after a while, my mom reached a breaking point, and she finally kind of half-jokingly snapped at him. She's like, at some point, you have to stop being a feral cat on my porch. And uh, he smirked. That was actually the only inkling we had that my brother was kind of still inside. I'll say this. The manias are scary, The psychotic breaks are scary, but actually nothing really prepares you for the depressions. After he got released from the hospital for the first time, the doctors explained to you that what goes up must come down. And very quickly, my brother sunk into a depression unlike anything I've ever witnessed, and I started actually to long for psychotic Sam. A couple weeks later, my parents went on a business trip, and I came home and I watched my brother for two weeks. He cried from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to bed, He couldn't laugh. I mean, I used to try to make him laugh as much as I could, but something that just came so easily now maybe might get a faint smile. I don't know. My brother just got to this point where it was hard to watch. He he cried all the time, and he was sad, and he felt like life wasn't worth living. He barely moved, and he actually couldn't be left alone even for a second. And that's, that's the stuff that people don't really kind of prepare you for. Finally, after the two weeks... It was time for me to leave, and I gave him a hug, and I said I would see you soon, and he followed me outside, and he started begging me not to leave. And I got in my car, and my dad restrained him in a hug, and he started pleading with me and crying hysterically. My funny, smart, hilarious brother hysterically cried and pleaded for me not to leave. I looked into his eyes, and I just saw this desperation to not be left alone with his mind. As I walked out of the driveway... I started to cry, thinking that I'd probably never be able to erase that image from my brain. I would say the worst thing than losing your own mind is probably watching somebody you love lose theirs. Thank you so much. This is Risk. You know, 99.9% of songs written are about extremely idealized romantic relationships. And 99.9% of true stories are not about that. (laughs) So it's always a little tricky to 
figure out what to follow a story with. So this, of course, is Sia behind me now. And that was Liz Mealy, who you can find on Twitter at Liz Mealy. That's L-I-Z-M-I-E-L-E. And she has a podcast with the Jed Foundation called Jed Voices. It's a podcast where people talk about mental illness and suicide prevention. It's a really, really wonderful new podcast, so I highly recommend you check it out. And before Liz, we heard an interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Now I want to talk to you for just a bit about Beach Body On Demand. It's an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to a very wide variety of highly effective world-class workouts personalized to meet your needs, a total package to help you become a total package. <laughs> what was your New Year's resolution? Mine is to lose about 25 pounds and just to feel a lot healthier in my own body. So whatever your current fitness goals are, Beachbody On Demand is the convenient way to go. There's no need to schedule a class. The workouts range from 10 minutes to over an hour, all accessible on any web-enabled device and all for less than a gym membership. Best of all, with over 600 different workouts, Beachbody On Demand has programs for any fitness level, cardio, weight training, yoga, low impact, dance, Pio, P90X, uh, Insanity. I don't know what Insanity is, but <laughs> the 21-day fix, there's so much there. And Beachbody On Demand also includes extensive nutritional content, all proven to help people achieve their health and fitness goals. So you need to give it a try. Right now, our listeners at risk can get a free trial membership when you text RISK to 303030. Text R-I-S-K to 303030. You'll get full access to this entire platform for free. All the workouts and the nutrition information. Just text RISK to 303030. And don't forget the fabulous Valentine's Day offer at adamandeve.com. The Valentine's offer is 50% off almost any item and a free romance kit, and a free DVD, and free shipping. The code to use is RISK at adamandeve.com. They have a huge selection of everything from the very high-end sort of sex toys to much more affordable stuff, and the basics like condoms and lube and lingerie. So there's so much to find there at adamandeve.com. The romance kit that you get with the Valentine's offer includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something you'll both enjoy. So 50% off one item, free romance kit, free shipping. When you enter the offer code RISK at the checkout, that's risk at adamandeve.com. Our final story this week comes from the fabulous Biz Ellis. If you've never heard the One Bad Mother podcast over there at Maximum Fun, it's so much fun. Biz Ellis and Teresa Thorne uh, dig into all the nitty gritty of just how insane being a mother can be. You can also find Biz on Twitter at Biz Ellis. And here she is now 
at the last Risk Live show that we did in San Francisco at the San Francisco Sketch Fest this past January with a story we call Blessings and a Curse. On the day that I found out I was pregnant, I was cursed. And I would like to start by telling you guys that I really wanted to have a baby. I was 35 back then, I had just gotten married a few months earlier, and even though my husband was a few years younger than me, he had already been warned that as soon as the I do's were done, we were gonna start the let's get drunk and fool around method of trying to have a baby. In fact, we had what I like to call an Obama baby. Um, it was the night that President Obama was elected president, and we were already <laughs> we were already in bed, ready to go to sleep when we were woken up. Well, not woken up when we heard people outside of our Brooklyn apartment partying in the streets. So we got back up, went outside, did a huge collective high five to the universe, came back, had Obama one sex, and ta-da, pregnant. <laughs> Good memory. So uh, the day I got the positive test, I was on my way uh, to meet a friend in the West Village. And it was late evening and that kind of early winter cold in New York City where you wear an ugly coat. And if you live in cold weather, you know what I am talking about. It is where it is so cold, you don't care about fashion, you just want to put on the warmest, ugliest coat that you have and just assume that people will know how dazzling you are when you get wherever you're going and you throw the coat off like you're throwing back the curtain on opening night. Ta-da! My ugly coat was blue, and when I wore it, I looked like I was in the middle of being eaten by a giant blue maggot. <laughs> so there I was, walking down the street in the Rust Village, and that's when I see this figure approaching me. Now, I'm going to say figure because my brain couldn't process what I was seeing. It was a person-shaped figure, and... It had so many layers of coats and scarves on that he appeared to be seven feet tall and completely faceless. Uh, you could think like uh, the character of death meets a black hole. Just this looming, faceless mass of clothing gliding down West 11th Street towards me. And as I remember it, it's just the two of us on the street that evening. And we are about to come to one of those trees on the sidewalk that has a little gate around it. <laughs> For some reason in New York City, they put little gates around trees, I guess to keep people or dogs from peeing on the trees. But if you go to New York City, you can just take my advice and go ahead and assume that everything has pee on it or has been touched by a dick. Even like the subway handle at the top of the subway has been touched by a dick. I absolutely guarantee it. So anyway, uh, there I am, 
looking at the sidewalk uh, gated tree, and it's me and faceless layers. And I know that faceless layers and I are not going to pass the tree at the same time. So I decide I'm going to step aside and let faceless layers come first. It's the nice thing to do. So as I do, faceless layer passes the tree, and as it passes me, turns its head very slowly and spits on me. And at that moment, I know that I have been cursed. Or more importantly, the baby that is inside me has been cursed. I knew it as much as I knew that the sun was going to come out the very next day. So the very next day at 6.30 a.m., I go to work. I go right into my window-lined mahogany cubicle, and I pick up my phone, and I call my mama. And this is exactly how the conversation went. Hello? Hello, mama. Oh, hi, baby girl. Hi, mama. I have a question. Okay. How do you break a curse? And my mother, without missing a beat, there were no questions as to what do you mean a curse. There was no insinuation that there might not be anything like a curse existing in the world. She just answered me as clearly and as assertively as she would if she was giving me directions to the grocery store down the street. And she said... You go to the nearest Catholic church, you bless yourself with holy water, you light three candles to the Virgin Mary, and then you pray to her to break the curse. Okay, thanks, Mama. I've got to go. Oh, okay. I'll talk to you later. All right, bye, bye. I love you. I love you too. Bye. I hung up the phone, and I did exactly what she said. I worked across the street from Grand Central, so I went down to St. Agnes, which is on 43rd Street, and I walked right into that church. I blessed myself with holy water. I lit three candles to the Virgin Mary, and then I got down on my knees, and I begged her to make sure this baby wasn't cursed. Dear Mary, I am so sorry that I have not been very Catholic over the last 10 years. <laughs> and it would be a lie to say that I was returning to the Catholic faith. But... If you are real, will you please, please, please bless this baby? And then I went back to work. Now, here is the very good news. My baby, my daughter, my firstborn, Katie Bell, is not cursed. And then I had Ellis. Now... I know that that sounds like I am insinuating that my second child, my son, Ellis, is cursed. And I do not think he is, though I have never once prayed to the Virgin Mary to rain down her blessings upon him. And I do occasionally feel guilty about that in the wee hours of the morning. But what I realized after he was born was that it was me, in fact, who had been cursed. When you become a parent, nobody cares. <laughs> No one wants to hear how tired you are. No one wants to hear uh, how hard it is. No one wants to hear that your baby slept for an hour. None of it. It's like looking in this funhouse mirror and what people see is this distorted reflection of what you are. So for example, if you no longer want to go out at night anymore, that can be reflected back at you as, well, you're no fun since you've had that baby. If you can't return phone calls like you used to, or texts, or emails, that can be reflected back as, I knew that once you had that baby, we weren't going to be friends anymore. 
Um, sometimes uh, the never-ending tiredness of it all can be reflected back as, what do you mean you're having second thoughts about doing a storytelling show in a different city at 10 o'clock at night, way past your bedtime? <laughs> it's going to be so much fun. It's a really good choice. It's like a vacation from your child. Funhouse mirrors are not at all fun. They are a very unflattering version of yourself that can keep you up at two o'clock in the morning, leaving you to wonder at that time if maybe uh, the reflection is actually true. What I think about at 2 a.m. is that nobody believes me. My son Ellis screamed the entire first year of his life. And I would like to be clear that there was nothing medically wrong with him. He just seemed to be a kid who didn't really want to be in the world. And I want to be clear that I don't mean he cried a lot. And that's also really awful for anybody who has a baby that cries a lot. Ellis screamed, and his scream sounded like somebody was hurting a baby. I always imagined it was like、uh, somebody taking needles and sticking it under your fingernails or in your eyes. It was a really horrible scream, and none of the things that usually make babies feel better worked for him. Cars and strollers made it way, way worse. He didn't really nap, so I never really got a break from it. And the only thing that seemed to bring him comfort was nursing, and I wasn't really that into it. I never got like the big endorphin rush that a lot of women talk about when they breastfeed. It was just something I had chosen to do. And he would feed for hours, and I would just be sort of trapped there in the house for these long periods of time, not able to get up and like walk around. And I will openly admit that at times it felt like he was willfully holding me prisoner in the house, even though I know that's not true because he was just a baby. So somewhere around six weeks in, I had this realization that I needed to get the fuck out of the house. <laughs> And the thing about the first few months of、uh, newborn life is that it is not a time in which we make really good decisions. <laughs> Uh, but I had made this decision, and it felt really important. And I was going to take myself and my baby to Whole Foods. <laughs> I love Whole Foods, guys. I go like. Three times a year because it's a real treat for me, and I buy nice things, and it's very fun. And I never thought that anything could go wrong, or that Ellis might have a reaction in the middle of Whole Foods because nothing bad ever happens at Whole Foods. And we actually got there all right. But then, as we were coming off the escalator on the second floor, he began to scream, and his screaming always、uh, would bring up these feelings inside me of sadness and rage and anger. All at once, because I couldn't stop him from screaming. I couldn't make him stop. So there we are, standing in the gluten-free section of Whole Foods, and I'm frozen, and he's screaming, and I'm looking at the gluten-free pasta, and in my head I'm thinking to myself, I can't move. I really need somebody to come help me, and nobody's going to come help me, because. People tend to walk away from screaming babies and crying mothers in the middle of Whole Foods. <laughs> Now, a really good question is, Biz, why did you not just go home? I have to admit, it just never fucking occurred to me. <laughs> I was at Whole Foods to go grocery shopping, and I was going to go grocery shopping. 
It was like this weird side quest in The Legend of Zelda where it doesn't have any outcome like for the whole game itself, but if I did it, I would get an apple that would like uh, restore my health. And that was great. So if I made it through Whole Foods, maybe I could get like a $2 apple that was organic and it would probably just rot because I don't really like eating fucking fruit as a snack. I go to Whole Foods for meat and cheeses. So I'm standing there and I realize I've got to start moving. So I've got Ellis screaming in one arm. Uh, The other hand is pushing an empty grocery cart through Whole Foods. And I'm crying, trying to find any employee who will not run away when I come up to them. The fourth employee did not run away. And I asked, sobbing like a lunatic, is there any place I can take my baby to feed him? She says, yeah, she can take him to the changing rooms. At which point, I had no idea there were places to try on clothes at Whole Foods, but there are places to try on clothes at Whole Foods. So I make my way there, and I spend the next hour sitting in this changing room, crying with my breasts hanging out, feeding Ellis in this room that smelled like patchouli and essential oils, praying that... Uh, No one would need to try on organic yoga pants until we were done. (laughs) And what I saw in the funhouse mirror at that moment was a disgusting version of the person that I once was. And every single day that year was like the Whole Foods Day. And it was terrible. Uh, I realized that I had had postpartum when it occurred to me that I only referred to Ellis as the baby, or my son. Eventually, he stopped screaming, which is really not true, because what we discovered was if we played this CD, (laughs) United and Divided, the songs of the Civil War, as re-sung by popular artists of today, like Shovels and Rope, the Blind Boys of Alabama, and Loretta Lynn, it actually made him stop screaming. And it was a fucking miracle, guys. And every single day for two years, the fall of Charleston played in my car everywhere we went on repeat. But it's a really good song. But at this point in time, his screaming had already completely scarred me. Now, there are still times when I'll be sitting in the house and the kids will be asleep and it'll be really quiet and I could still hear his screaming like an echo. And I had this realization that it felt like his screams were actually part of the walls uh, in our house now. People want to believe you love being a mom. Uh, When they ask you, how's it going, you're supposed to say, great, because that is believable. That is what they want to hear. When they would ask me that first year how I was doing, I would say, I'm having a really hard time. And a lot of people did not believe me. In fact, a lot of people laughed. Uh, They thought I was making a joke like, I don't do Mondays. (laughs) And when sometimes they would ask for me to explain, I would start telling them about the screaming. But of course, right at that moment, Ellis was asleep for that like weird 15 minute sleep he would do like once a day. And 
they would look at me like I was making it up, and I actually began to feel like I was living in a haunted house. And like I would invite people over and say, "The house is haunted," and they would say, "Biz, it's not haunted. It's just settling. It's a lovely house." And then they would leave, and the walls would just start bleeding. <laughs> Ellis is for now, and we have these really long stretches uh, that I consider really great.、Uh, and I remember he's such a good kid. He's smart and he's funny and he's really kind. He's just a kid who's also more. And I sometimes during those moments think maybe I did make it up. And then he's four, so something will trigger him, and he'll have his meltdown, and it will be more. And then I'm suddenly standing back in a house with walls bleeding, and then I'm up at 2 a.m. thinking how much I hate it, and how sometimes I wish I liked being a mother more because I think I'm actually pretty good at it. I just kind of hate it. Even now, when I run into friends who knew me from before I had kids, they always say the same thing. Every single one of them, they say, "I cannot believe you have a baby! I can't believe you're a mother!" <laughs> I'm not really quite sure what I'm supposed to take from that because it's not like I gave babies heroin. I just don't think <laughs> that I lived a very maternal life. And it's at that moment that I realize that what I'm struggling with now, and what I have been struggling with ever since I got pregnant eight years ago, was that I also do not believe that I am a mother. I keep thinking I'm going to wake up, I'm going to love it, I'm going to love my kids every day, I'm never going to be upset when I don't, and that is what I realize is the curse. Thank you. Me.
is all for this week's episode folks this is Steve downs behind me now and we just heard from biz ellis if you want to hear more from biz be sure to check out the one bad mother podcast over there on maximum fun and if you want to hear less from me <laughs> remember that if you give ten dollars per month or more over at our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. You can get the ad-free versions of the episodes each week where you don't have to listen to me talking about, well, Patreon, for example, or uh, any of our sponsors, all that kind of stuff. Some people, um, you know, <laughs> don't like all the talking in between and around the stories, and uh, that's one way to uh, support us but not have to listen to so much advertising and all. Another thing is, if you give, I think $5 or more a month, then you have access to our first two years of Risk episodes, remastered uh, and with the ads taken out and all of our all-star episodes. So many people are not aware that our 2009, 2010, 2011, those episodes made in those years are available behind a paywall. So if you give $5 or more a month to our Patreon, you can get those first two years worth of risk. You must hear them. There's so many classics back there in the first couple of years. Now, we are so excited about our upcoming shows on February 17th. We are back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Kate Willett, Diana Dinerman, Paul Gilmartin, and Sabrina Jalise are all going to be there February 17th at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On February 24th, we're back at Caveat in Manhattan. That is on the Lower East Side. It's on Clinton Street. Vanessa Galenia will be there. Andrea Allen, Richard Cardillo, and David Drake. Another phenomenal show. How else can you support us or be a part of all of this? Well, you can leave a good comment, a good review for us on iTunes in the podcast section there. You can join the Risk Discussion Group on Facebook. On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Uh, you can pitch us your stories, for goodness sakes, at risk-show.com slash submissions. You can pre-order our book at theriskbook.com. And you can find out all about our education, our sister company, The Story Studio at thestorystudio.org. We do all kinds of storytelling training, one-on-one -on -one over Skype, in-group sessions, corporate training. It's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Thank you.
time again for donkey snoring. I woke him up.